Hello, film listeners. I'm Josh Wall, and frankly, I love movies. Welcome to my podcast where I dissect movies with fellow film enthusiasts and discuss why we love the medium as much as we do. To bridge the gap between our two series, Alyssa Micha and Matt Simmons are back to count down our top 10 favorite movies of the 2000s decade. All right, Matt Simmons is here. Alyssa Micha is back on the show with us today. Um, we're talking about our top 10 favorite movies of the 2000s decade. I'm super excited. We're bridging the gap between the From Stage to Screen series and the next series that we're going to be putting on. Um, super excited. How are you guys doing today? Great. How are you? Oh, fantastic. <laughs> I'm doing very well. Thank you. Thanks for having me on again. <laughs> of course. Of course. Great I'm to have you. a lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Great to have you both on. Uh, so I think we did the top uh, top 10 movies of the 2010s decade when that decade was over. So why are we doing the 2000s? Well, I love making lists like this and going back and looking on the decade. And this decade is very uh, very special to us because uh, it was you know the decade that we grew up in and first started going to the movies a lot. I want to first talk about your initial reactions to, um, to the decade as you were growing up in it or as you were watching films. I want to start with you, Alyssa, because you obviously have a very different perspective on it uh, than, than we do. So what stood out as the years went on from 2000 to 2009 in film for you? So for me, I, I would say, you know, it was an interesting decade for me because I, I'm a little bit older than you guys. And so I did all of high school and all of college during that decade. So my kind of film viewing habits changed quite a bit over those years. And, you know, when I was I was like 12 when I decided I wanted to be a filmmaker. And so I was kind of already paying attention to all of that stuff. And I, I have to say that the the 2000s are not my favorite decade for a film. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, most of the films that like I would put in my all-time top 10 do not come from that decade. But mm-hmm. I think that, you know, a lot of stuff for me happened that was very formative and like how I view film and what kind of film I wanted to make, um, especially in the world of like documentary. Um, you know, when I originally wanted to be a filmmaker, it was like, oh, you know, I want to make those like scripted Hollywood films. And, you know, that, that was like my idea of what I wanted to do. And then as I got older and got into college, I was like, oh, documentary and animation is actually really the thing that is, you know, tugs at my heartstrings. That's really what I want to do. So, yeah, I don't know if that even answered your question. No, it, <laughs> it, it, no, it did. Absolutely. No, it's it's good to have that that different perspective and different, uh, you know, take on, on the time. Uh, Matt, what about you? Yeah, I mean, what's funny about, I think, my list is that most of these movies are ones that I went back and revisited and didn't watch as I grew up in that decade because they're, you know, maybe more mature. There's a couple that were, but, um, you know, it was a decade where I, I aged up. I uh, it was a lot of formulative years. Um, so you know, growing the love film, like watching the movies that really, yeah, first like sprouted my my love for film. So it, it's it's an important decade. Yeah, I would say it's probably not my favorite either. Um, but I do have some of my all time favorites on this list. So I'm excited to talk about mm-hmm. it. I, I'm the same way, and I I agree. It's definitely not my favorite. Um, we talked a lot about in the 2010s podcast that. Um, we started to kind of uh, form our own opinions on also like what movies we 
uh, really loved and really spoke to us from there. Obviously, like I talked a lot about like like Ladybird and the Social Network during that episode, and just how personal those movies were, um, but also like brought on some some bigger ideas. The this decade is really interesting because I, I feel like what it stands out is that this was kind of the last decade that where film reigned supreme in terms of the medium. Like, because we talked a lot about how this past decade, the shift to streaming services and to television became, you know, became the norm. And a lot of movies that we would see getting made in the decade before were now being made as miniseries right. or television series. Um, and, and this time, going back, I realized there were some really big movies during this decade. There's a lot of high-concept films. Uh, obviously, I'm sure we'll talk about it, like Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter. Um, you know, the MCU started with Iron Man and obviously the Dark Knight trilogy. They were very big. And those were the movies that stuck, like, stood out to me the first time. Like, as I was growing up, I went to go see all those movies. You know, all the big, like, the Spider-Man movies, all the big action movies. And now going back something else like sticks out to me. It's, it's completely different. Like in revisiting these, um, these movies from the decades, what stood out to you guys, Alyssa? Um, yeah, I think like you said, like high concept, you know, when I try to think back of like, what movies did I go see in high school? What movies did I go see in college? It's like, I don't know. It's all such a blur. I watched so many movies, (laughs) but like, so I kind of just like pulled up a list online of like, films by year like what was released and I was kind of surprised I was like oh yeah okay I'm like all these films like the one that stands out to me like The Fountain Darren Aronofsky's film mm-hmm. and I remember when that came out and that film blew my mind I yeah. mean it was like <laughs> I was like holy crap like especially yeah. coming off of like his other films up to that right. point and it's like he's one of my favorite directors and I just remember so Same. many people I don't know if I can swear on this podcast. You can. Okay, okay. I remember so many people shitting on that film. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, it doesn't make any sense. I don't get it. And I'm like, but it's brilliant. It's so complex and so just stunning to watch. It is still, I consider, one of the most beautiful films I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's like, I don't know. For Yeah, I think high concept is really kind of on the money for the films that stood out for me during that decade. I think it's interesting you bring up The Fountain because I think uh, Darren Aronofsky is one of those directors who really came into his own during this decade. Uh, I'm sure we'll talk about some of his films uh, throughout this episode. Uh, I mean, just this was like, I feel like his, de- like the decade for him and also kind of continuing on that, it was kind of the decade where the director's name also started to become a selling point. Obviously, we have Christopher Nolan coming up at this time. Edgar Wright starts making the Cornetto trilogy during uh, during this period. Um, so many... Uh, directors like you started like that was almost the biggest name and then obviously that comes to fruition in 2010 with Inception mm-hmm. and uh, all of those films um but what, what what stood out to you upon rewatch man um when I went back to you know when you told me I was gonna be on this like a couple weeks ago uh I wanted to revisit some more foreign films and I don't have a ton in my top 10 but I do have a couple in my honorable mentions so I I enjoyed going back to revisit those because a lot I just um enjoy hearing stories from foreign directors because they tell such different perspectives I think from American cinema so you get to see a lot of stories that you wouldn't see otherwise um so that was kind of a treat to go back because I think the 2000s just have some really knockout foreign films um, that didn't always get a lot of attention in America because now we're seeing in this past decade we saw a lot more exposure to foreign films like Parasite Winning and you know whatnot in that manner. Um, 
but in the 2000s, it was still pretty, you had to be a film fan to find these ones. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was, it was a real treat to go back and watch some of these again, or for the first time. Um, but also just revisiting stuff that uh, you know I loved a lot for a while, but going back to it and being like, ah, I don't know if I do anymore, or you know, finding new films that I uh, I love all you know for the first time. So yeah, it's kind of all over the place, you know. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm pretty much the same, and that a lot of the movies that really stuck out to me on this watch were ones that um, kind of slid under my radar at first, um, or I like had heard about but never really got the chance to see until much later. Um, thankful for like my classes in college, like film analysis and stuff like that, that um, uh, put me on to like like Pan's Labyrinth. I didn't watch until I was in college. Is one of them, um, Eternal Sunshine. They like they were movies that I had heard about, but obviously I was just like too young for. So it was cool to kind of come back and uh, with you know fully new eyes, be like, oh my god, how have I not seen this till now? And that's always so much fun when you get that feeling, and it's it's you know you're finding a hidden gem, but it's only like it was hidden to you for so long, right. uh, which is a really great great experience. I kind of think too, like this decade, you know, looking back and kind of comparing it to the 2010s, like. I think this was kind of the last decade before we started really getting into like everything is a sequel, everything is a remake, you know, and a lot of those sequels or those original, those, you know, series type films started in the 2000s and then carried through up to like now. But, you know, it's like I feel it was kind of the last great decade for just like really original concept, one-off type films that, you know, I just, we, we don't see much of that anymore. And I get like, because, you know, they, they're not huge money makers in a lot of cases. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, as, as far as like original new ideas, you know, that was, it was a good decade for that, I think. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of the um, there's a lot of like bigger, like more successful films from this decade that you just wouldn't see getting made today, especially like it's things like stuff that is like original and uh, made by, um, you know, big names in the industry at the time. And like even to go back to the 2010, something like The Social Network, like wouldn't get made today necessarily. It was kind of the last like big one. OK, it's about it's a true story. It's based on a hot selling book. It has all these big name actors, a big director, a big screenwriter, and we're going to throw $40 million at it. You know, that doesn't happen as much anymore. You kind of have to get like really lucky with movies like that. And I also want to note that the I feel like the, the technical switch in this decade was very, um, very noticeable for me because like the last decade, I felt like, I mean, in terms other than like special effects, um, the filmmaking technology and cameras and stuff stayed like pretty much the same. But then in the 2000s, I remember when I was a kid, when I would watch the first Sam Raimi Spider-Man movie, and then when I went to go see the second one, I realized, oh my God, this looks so much more clear. And it's like, it was clearly like a very different camera and different technology. And obviously this is when digital cinema started to come up even more than it already was in the late 90s. And so just that switch alone, like you can clearly see right around like 2004, 2005. And you're just like, oh my gosh, everything, it just looks so much more like what we think of as cinematic now. It's, it's astonishing to see. All right. So if there, do you guys have any other final thoughts before we uh, dive right in? No, let's get in. All right, let's do it. All right. So much like the last countdown we did, we're going to start with our honorable, honorable mentions. Um, these are films that we still love, but didn't necessarily make the list uh, at first. We're going to go um, myself, and then we'll do Alyssa, and then uh, we'll go Matt. 
so just to rattle off a couple of them, uh, I have 10 in my honorable mentions. I have The Wrestler, A Two Mama Tebien, Zodiac, Hot Fuzz, Minority Report, 28 Days Later, Zombieland, The Whole Lord of the Rings trilogy I grouped together as one, uh, Ratatouille, and Walk the Line. Uh, a lot of these movies are ones that uh, it's, it's actually kind of half and half ones that I watched a lot as a kid, like um, Ratatouille, uh, Minority Report, uh, and uh, Walk the Line were two of my favorites when I was growing up from this decade, so I had to put them on there. And revisiting them, I still think they're um, really a lot of fun. And then the new ones, like Itu Mama Tebien, 28 Days Later, are ones that just recently in the past year really affected me and I thought were just um, fantastic movies um, that, I mean, very different, but I was it was, again, one of those where I was like, how have I not seen this before? Uh, Hot Fuzz, I think, is Edgar is my favorite Edgar Wright movie, and The Wrestler has one of the best performances uh, that I've ever seen in Mickey Rourke. Again, mentioning Darren Aronofsky, who was just knocking it out of the park this decade. Uh, and I mean, we'll probably be talking about Lord of the Rings at some point during <laughs> this during this uh, episode. So uh, it was hard to put them uh, to not put them on the list, but uh, this was a very difficult list to make. And honestly, like some of these were fighting for my num- for my number ten, like Zodiac um, or or The Wrestler, um, and. Uh, and yeah, so those are those are my honorable mentions. Awesome. Um, so am I next? Okay. Yeah, I'm go like for going, it. I'm, <laughs> I didn't know I was supposed to do honorable mentions, so that's, oh, okay. <laughs> I was just kind of going through my list. I'm glad I kept. I'm glad I kept my whole my whole list. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, oh yeah, there were a lot of good films, but like when it came down to picking one film from each year or like picking a top ten, yeah, there were a lot that I was like, oh, I have to leave this off, but like something mm-hmm. has to go. Um, so just kind of running down the list. Uh, oh, Brother, Where Art Thou? Idiocracy. Brokeback Mountain. Um, Lost in Translation. Mm. Uh, Itu Mama Tambien is on there. Um, Moon. Dogtooth. Mm. A Serious Man. Um, and as much as I hate to leave it off the list, it just didn't make the cut. Um, Darjeeling Limited. Mm. Which, oh. You know, I'm a huge Wes Anderson fan. I love that. It, it came out as the same year as something else. And I was like, oh, well, I got to. I gotta pick the other one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, wow, that was a very stacked, uh, very stacked honorable mentions. Uh, I want to give a special shout out to Oh Brother Where Art Thou. It was a very formative movie for me as a kid. I love that movie. It's so funny. It's just it's wonderful. Also, just to mention the, the technical aspect of that, how they switched to color coding in, in digital and post. Uh, so uh, yeah, it's. St- I mean, and it's still. It's one of the, like, and that's the thing. Like going back, I feel like a lot of these films don't necessarily hold up <laughs> mm-hmm. and I feel like that's one of the few that I'm like yeah I'm like it's still it's solid all the way through <laughs> yeah <laughs> absolutely yeah I just like the idea of taking like a an old story like the Odyssey and adapting it in such a unique and interesting way like they did absolutely uh are there any other final thoughts you want to give on your honorable mentions no I mean there's there could be a lot more but mm-hmm. We'll keep mm-hmm. it. We'll keep it short. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right, I, I also had to pare these down to 10 because Josh told me to. And I, <laughs> I want to listen to him. Uh, it was really hard, though. I, I definitely cut off some that I really like. But just real quickly, um, Revolutionary Road, Master and Commander, Best in Show, Star Trek 2009, Minority Report, Zodiac, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, Inglorious Bastards, The Pianist, and In Bruges. Um, this right here is like almost like it could be my top 10 because I love all these as much as the ones on my actual top 10. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a solid list, I think right there. <laughs> yeah. That's the worst part is when like you're making the list and then you get to like number seven and you're like, Oh no, I'm running out of space. Like <laughs> it's just the title. Yeah, 10, 10 is, is so few. It seems like when you're making a list like this, um, mm-hmm. but yeah, just real quick, like 
Uh, Best in Show, hilarious. Star Trek, I think, is one of the most successful like uh, big budget type movies, and I, I think it's really good. Uh, Master and Commander, I just recently watched for the first time, and that's kind of one where I'm like, how do I not watch this sooner? Because I just adored it. I love like ships like that, and like the Pirates of the Caribbean series is really fun for the more fantastical, but I really enjoyed the real world nature of Master and Commander. Um, Harry Potter, the third one's great. I love that director. We'll we'll be getting back to Coron. Oh yeah, we will. Um, and then yeah, the pianist in Bruges uh, and Glorious Bastards, all good stuff. Yeah, uh, I also just wanted to give a quick shout out to um, a few movies that were um, comedies from this decade because I feel like this was where the comedy, the like adult humor comedy, like really reigned supreme. We talked a little bit about like how last decade, the 2010s, wasn't that shining for comedies i feel like it was like flat out comedies did better this decade yeah for sure so just to name off a couple that were extremely successful uh and well-known uh anchorman super ball or super bad dodgeball school of rock bruce almighty hot fuzz 40 year old virgin best in show napoleon dynamite wedding crashers forgetting sarah marshall mean girls and kiss kiss bang bang uh obviously uh meant to i actually meant to say this in the in the intro but um this was the era where judd apatow started to reign supreme in terms of comedy i feel like that was a very um, poignant moment in the decade when he started to really take over the comedy scene when he came on first with 40-Year-Old Virgin. Uh, and was that was a movie for me as a kid that I um, kind of snuckly watched from my parents because I, I just knew so much about it and like had really wanted to see it. And, you know, the adult comedy has kind of drifted uh, more and more over the years and just it, they make adult comedies, but they're almost like um, pandering them to a more younger audience like teenagers and even like people in their 20s who, um, you know, are not the key demographic for people for the 40-year-old virgin because that is a much more like adult like kind of um, scenario. But I just think that these all of these um, comedies are they're made by great people. Um, and a lot of them like the jokes and the the time, you know, really holds up and it ha- they have like a really great, you know, snapshot of the of the decade, particularly like Mean Girls. I mean, like it's just became a classic almost instantly. Um, and and yeah, so I, I just wanted to give a shout out to those comedies. Yeah, definitely. Because sometimes it's hard when making a list like this to put up like those straight comedies up with like some intense drama because it's almost not fair because they're just such different emotions you're getting from them. So it's it's difficult to do. But I still do have a, a couple comedies on my top 10. But yeah. good <laughs> shout outs there. Good shout outs. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mentioned Zombieland in my honorable mentions, which is a personal favorite. Um, all right, are we ready to get into our lists? Yeah. All right, let's do it. All right, starting starting off at number 10. For some reason, when making these lists for me, the number 10 spot is just always the hardest to make. Like, I always know at least, like, the top five, and then the bottom, like, five, like, just get a little bit. It could be switched around all the time. But um, number 10 was one... We actually, and the, the other reason that we're doing this is while we were in, um, you know, closer quarantine, Matt and I would make these lists of our favorite, like, movies of certain genres, and one of the ones we did was this list of the top 10 2000s, just for fun, and uh, my list has changed quite a bit since then, so we figured Mine we should, as well. <laughs> so we should just do it for the podcast, but um, number 10 was one that I put in my honorable mentions initially because I wasn't sure if I still liked it as much as I did when I first saw it, um, but rewatching it just a few weeks ago, was I knew that it had to be on the list, and that's Brokeback Mountain. Uh, it's just a really beautiful love story, one that like really caught uh, the culture's eye pretty quickly because obviously you know, it comes out in two thousand five. It's Heath Ledger and Jake Gyllenhaal. There, it is. It's a gay love story, um, and people like. I don't almost like people weren't necessarily ready for it. It got made fun of relentlessly by comedians and you know late like talk shows, but it really kind of you know caught the public by um, by surprise and took and 
came in like strong. Obviously, Ang Lee won Best Director, um, and everyone was talking about Heath Ledger and Joan Hall's performances, which are phenomenal. You really believe them. And the thing that struck me is that sometimes when you go back to certain like love stories, it almost doesn't. It seems too fake or could be too hokey. Like I feel like in the hands of any other director, that this movie could have like just been a disaster when you come back to it and you're just like, ooh, it's, you know, they're really leaning into it, but it's so honest. It's so, like, raw in the emotion. You really believe them that they are in love and they are dealing with these, like, really tough emotions inside. And, yeah, two of my favorite performances of the of the decade in, in Ledger and Gyllenhaal. Uh, and it, it's still crazy to think that Ang Lee directed it at the yeah, same time. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, 9 over 10 is, is Brokeback Mountain. It's, it's fantastic. So, wait, why do you think it's hard to believe that Ang Lee directed it? Because I'm so used to him doing these... Um, now bigger higher concept like technical like movies like he's done a lot with like different frame rates and different filming techniques and this is a little bit more of just the subtle subtle personal drama in that and maybe i need to see more of his movies to kind of dispel that thought i was gonna Um, say like go back and watch some of the stuff before that like yeah i think mm -hmm. i think you'd be very surprised at at how much his style has shifted um Mm -hmm, but yeah pre-broke back broke back mountain i think is definitely worth revisiting as far as like his filmography goes because there's some real gems in there Mm -hmm. i will definitely do that um so yeah i'm trying to like rank these now but i I think (laughs) if i had to pick one to go into number 10 um it would be waking life richard linklater Mm. um again with the animation stuff you know that it was pre a scanner darkly this is kind of like his first foray into that um you know, rotoscoping kind of world. And it's this like beautiful amalgamation of, um, you know, all these different artists coming together and doing their own kind of style while using the same technique. And so it's this kind of amorphous, weird, conceptual film, but it's also super beautiful to watch. Um, so yeah, I would say that that's my number ten. It's not the best film of the decade, but I do think it deserves a mention because it was pretty pretty amazing. For sure, I think it's I think it's good to mention Linklater. Uh, huge huge fan of Linklater. I mean, I said School of Rock and Comedies, but obviously he had the two films and uh, he had before uh, Sunset during this uh, time. And he's so you know caught up in or not caught up, but like focused on capturing you know life at that moment. Uh, and it's really cool to see. Uh, I haven't seen the film fully, but I have seen parts of it. It's cool to see it leading up to a scanner darkly. And that level of animation is just so unique and so him at the same time. Uh, yeah, I, a great pick. I, I really, really love Linklater. Yeah, I wish I could comment, but I haven't seen it. But now, <laughs> now I feel obliged to check it out. Mm-hmm. It's kind uh, of like, um, so have you seen uh, Slackers? Right. No, I know what that is. I know okay. what it is, though. So it's like if you, t- it's kind of like if Slackers and a Scanner Darkly had a baby. Oh, uh, okay. So <laughs> it's, it's somewhere in between those two. Mm, okay. I'll put it on my list. Okay. My number 10 is, I think, a pretty interesting pick. Like Josh, I don't think we'll see this coming, but it's Match Point. Um, oh, wow. <laughs> obviously, it's kind of difficult to talk about movies with Woody Allen now and the woke age we're in, but I'll just kind of breeze by that just for the sake of talking about the art here. Um, Match Point is, I, I think nobody talks about it when they're talking about Woody Allen movies because it's so not him in how dark and, you know, it's almost like a thriller uh, and the way it culminates, which I won't spoil. But um, it's just a really, I really like the direction. I really like how the story culminates. It's one of my, I think, the most satisfying endings. 
Uh, and Scarlett Johansson's incredible in it. And uh, is it? It's not um, Jonathan. Jonathan Reese Myers. Myers yeah. yeah, I was gonna say Reese Davies, but that's yeah. Um, <laughs> he's good in it. Uh, it's just a really well written film, uh, and I think it's one nobody ever revisits or even has seen. <laughs> um, but I really, I really enjoy it. Yeah. That was when I remember seeing the trailer for a lot, like mm-hmm. when, it, when it first came out. What year was that? Two thousand five or six? Yeah, around that. Uh, I think five, mm-hmm. maybe. Yeah, but the, and again, like you don't really think of Woody Allen a lot as you know doing the the big thriller, and that's one. I mean, you've been telling me to see for a while. Yeah, because <laughs> when I saw the posters of it, and I'd seen other Allen movies, I figured it was another like comedy. Oh, a tennis player and Scarlett Johansson, another cute little rom com. No, it's not. It's not at all. And it's it's just interesting to see a director go a completely different angle than their norm. Um, and I really like it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nice. All right. My number nine uh, is my pick for uh, my favorite foreign film of the decade. I had a few in contention for this. Um, particularly, I mentioned Pan's Labyrinth earlier um, and uh, Itu Mama Tebien, uh, which I watched earlier this year, which was just a, a really uh, transcendent emotional experience. But uh, my number nine is, is one that uh, we've done on the show before, uh, and that's The Piano Teacher. Uh, Michael Heineke's um, masterpiece, uh, st- starring Isabel Huppert, giving one of the best performances I think I've ever seen. It is so emotionally raw and disturbing, but it um, speaks volumes to what it's uh, uh, in terms of you know, wanting in romance and relationships and partnerships. Uh, and it's it's stream it's extremely hard to watch. But upon this last rewatch, there were so many things I didn't notice the first time. And the the dialogue like really jumps out to you. And Heineke just uh, you know really has a very signature style of making everything feel as natural as possible, doing constant long takes. Uh, and I, I again I can't stress enough how fantastic uh, Isabel Huppert is. It's just this um, very clearly emotionally uh, disturbed person. And um, but so cold, but you really feel for her. Like there's just whole shots where it's just on her face mm. and you just really have to read into what she's feeling just by this one expression. Uh, and the guy who plays, I'm forgetting his name, but the actor who plays Walter Klemmer is such a shit heel, but he's <laughs> so good. Um, and yeah, so uh, shout out to Rihanna Hansen who turned me onto that movie and shout out to you for making me watch it. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, I actually watched that and, um, Alyssa mentioned Dogtooth. I watched those like pretty close together, and both of those movies just make me feel so icky, but so they're so like captivating, like mm-hmm. in the way they like express this almost nihilism and like the darkness of humanity. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a good movie. I really liked it. I'd like to watch more Hannah because I've only seen that in a more, um, and I really like his style and his uh, his take on capturing humanity. Um, yeah, good mm-hmm. pick. Yeah. Uh, so. I'd say my number nine film um, is Fahrenheit 9-11, Michael Moore. Nice. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, like I said, you know, I was in high school when that happened. Mm -hmm. Um, So I have very, like, vivid memories of that and how everything went down. Um, And I want to say this is the first documentary that I ever saw in a theater. Um, You know, it was like documentaries generally don't get major theatrical releases and this was Mm -hmm. like a big deal for me um so i remember going to see this like i think multiple times i went to see this um (laughs) and i think you know before this he had had you know bowling for columbine Mm -hmm. but that you know that was about it as far as major releases and i think this kind of really defined michael moore as a filmmaker and definitely like put him in that category of like 
extreme documentary. (laughs) Um, So, you know, for me, I think it it deserves to be in my top 10, but I couldn't, I don't know. I didn't know where to put it, but I think, I think it should be in there. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I I definitely agree. That was the one that, you know, turned everyone on uh, what Michael Moore represents in terms of not just documentary filmmaking, but in terms of political culture. And that one really shook people like when it came out and he, and yeah, I mean, he hasn't really stopped with that kind of energy and has been putting his opinions on anyone since. And it's always fun to see what Michael Moore is cooking up. Yeah, that, <laughs> you know, I you think could, I, Michael Moore falls into that camp of like Kevin Smith. You either love him or you hate or him. Hate him. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, there's not really <laughs> in a lot between. Of people hate him, but yeah, no, that you could even make the case that that's like the documentary because I think it still remains the highest grossing documentary. It won the Palme d'Or, which documentaries never do. Um, it's it's very significant in terms of documentary filmmaking, obviously, and uh, yeah, it's good pick. Yeah, number nine is a little film I like to call Super Bad. Uh, <laughs> it it kind of feels out of place with some of these other more introspective films I have on the rest of my list, but it's I think just one of the pure funniest movies I've ever seen in my life, and it's one I keep revisiting because um, I only watched it for the first time maybe three years ago, um, but I've revisited it many many times since because I just think it's absolutely hilarious um it really telegraphs the stars that jonah hill michael Sarah, and emma stone would all become and you can just see the the talent from all of them there and uh, you know the things they would go on to do later um and yeah i just think it's absolutely hilarious um and really holds up mm-hmm. that was one for me that was also brand new i remember seeing the trailer and everyone quoting it like all the time my brother was in high school when that movie came out so it was it was a pretty it was a pretty big deal um and yeah i just watched it for the first time i think maybe a year or two ago and I it's so fun like it's just it's another one of those just great like all in one day movies almost like dazed and confused for this decade yeah definitely um, and I also want to shout out for, for that decade or from that year is, uh, it's 2007 which a lot of people say is kind of one of the better um, years from this decade or just in in this century um, obviously we have that um, Zodiac came out in that year and it was um, you know There Will Be Blood No Country um, tons of movies came out from that year uh, that are all different in some kind of ways. I don't really know what the best decade for film is from this decade, but or best year from film is for this decade. But that one I feel like sticks out because so many of the like iconic movies that we associate with now like came from uh, 2007. Yeah, another one that I didn't put on my list, but Juno was very also iconic in the cultural zeitgeist at the time, um, you know, and its quirkiness. But that was that was almost in my honorable mentions. Also, Michael Sarah. <laughs> also, Michael Sarah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Which, by the way, what is he even doing now? <laughs> I don't know. He has that weird role and like, this is the end. And then, like, I mm-hmm. haven't seen him anywhere doing anything <laughs> lately. Yeah. He has something coming out where he's wearing a mustache, but I don't know what it is. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So my number eight, actually, uh, it's good we're talking about 2007 because we're staying on that for my number eight pick, which is There Will Be Blood. Um one that uh, I feel like is kind of the the staple of the the film school boy to just kind of uh, drown over how great There Will Be Blood is. But honestly, it was one that uh, I saw early on uh, when I started to wanting to become a director. Uh, and I, I was just so, obviously, uh, Daniel Day-Lewis's performance is kind of the first thing that really hits you about it. It's probably one of the best performances I've ever seen. Uh, and upon this last rewatch, I, I had forgotten how many... Like the the second act was actually what stuck uh, stuck out to me the most with uh, talking a lot about his brother and how he doesn't really have anybody and the whole idea of 
you know, the perception of success and perception of what being an actual, like, like what humanity actually is. And it's, it's so interesting in this last rewatch, I was like, yeah, this is also Johnny Greenwood's score is fantastic. Um, and it, it just cemented for me, Paul Thomas Anderson being my favorite director. And so for, for that reason, I had to, had to put it on the list and it's, it's disturbing. It's very, it's very slow, but it's, it, it's really thought provoking. And I've, Again, I'm just leaning into the film boy cliche at this point, but it, it <laughs> is one that. that it is one that uh, does stick with me, and I uh, I do still really enjoy. I'm actually surprised it's that low for you. I thought you'd have it higher. <laughs> um, yeah. So Wait I think my other I, picks. Yeah. I was gonna say if like so for me, yeah, you say it's like the film boy thing, but like that came out while I was in film school. Mm-hmm. So it was like, <laughs> it was a big deal. Everyone was obsessed. There were many parodies of the milkshake scene. <laughs> um, I think there was even one in somebody's senior thesis. Um, so oh, you can, yeah, you can imagine. Um, so the my, meme. oh yeah. Go. The it was meme a good, potential. It was yeah. a good time. Um, so my number eight is One Hour Photo. <gasps> oh, <Okay>. yes. <laughs> yeah. I love One Hour Photo. <laughs> um, I think it's it's not only just a, an amazing story and it's so well crafted and, you know, Robin Williams is one of the best. And I think it, it was such a different role for him, you know, to play this like super creepy guy. Um, and I think it's one of the most interesting color studies like if you want to look at at you know color theory in relation to film it's such a i mean it's so amazing just scene by scene if you go through it's it's really i think a stunning example of like how color can affect storytelling so i i yeah i thought that one deserved to be in my top 10 remind me who directed that movie mark romanek yep. shout out to him was almost on this podcast I got to email him and ask him if what? he was, if he wanted to be on here. He <laughs> declined, amazing. but he the fact oh. that he responded was very very nice of him. That is uh, very nice. <laughs> yeah, Ithaca alumni Mark Romanek. Um, but uh, I did not see that one until I was in uh, until I was in college and was in a film analysis class my very first semester of freshman year. And uh, yeah, I was blown away. Obviously, Robin Williams gives one of the best performances of his career. Very very different performance. Uh, it's disturbing, but yeah, the colors like how like. And also the fact that because photos play such a uh, prominent are such a prominent theme in the story, everything does kind of look like a Polaroid. With the, everything's faded, especially in his life, it's almost grimy, and then it's very white, and it's just so like it takes away almost all personality that we uh, attach ourselves to with Robin Williams. Uh, and it's it has it has it's a polarizing film for for some, I think. But I I've seen it like three or four times, and I I do very much enjoy it. All right. Cool. My turn? Mm-hmm. All right. Kind of a 180 from Super Bad, but um, <laughs> my number eight is my pick for my favorite foreign film of the decade, which is The Lives of Others. Um, this is a brilliant, brilliant film. I just rewatched it recently just so I could, you know, have fresh thoughts on it. Um, it's just the screenplay is so complex and the story is so complex and dense and full of stuff. You'd think it was based on a book, but it is not. It is an original screenplay. It is so brilliant. Um, I really love the performance from, I'm forgetting the actor's name, but the, the lead guy there uh, who passed away actually, I think the year after this came out, which was really sad to see, but he's incredible. Um, it says a lot about, you know, surveillance and, you know, it's a, it's a really interesting take on the whole situation in 
uh, Berlin with the Berlin Wall, and you get it from the the side of East Germany with the with the um, you know in the communist East Germany. Uh, so there's a lot to say there. There's a lot of interesting critiques almost that are very subtle in the way they're exposed. Uh, the the problems that come with surveillance, the problems that come with uh, you know interfering in others' lives. But it's a, it's a really interesting movie, and I really really like it. <clears throat> I have not seen the film. Uh, it's it's one that I, I tried to get to, but I unfortunately I did not have the time to do so. But in the same way that we talked about Parasite on this last list, uh, it's one that everyone who I've talked to who has seen it says that it's just fantastic. And it is. <laughs> and, and so for that reason alone, just the hype around it just makes me very, very excited to finally make the jump and watch it. So I will get to it, absolutely. <laughs> um, all right. Number seven for me, I mentioned uh, earlier, another one I saw my freshman year um, in, in college in that film analysis class, uh, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Um, also, shout out uh, to uh, everyone I interned with when I was in Los Angeles. I interned at Partisan Entertainment, the Michelle Gondry's production company, so there was a lot of Eternal Sunshine stuff around there. Uh, this was one for me that I, I always saw the DVD cover of it in my house because my stepdad brought it home, and I was a massive Jim Carrey fan. Like He was like my hero when I was a kid, and so... I, and I was like, this is rated R. Oh, man, I can't watch it. And so <laughs> finally, and it was one that I, I kind of just forgot about. Like, I didn't really know, like, when I was going to get around to it. And finally, in that class, it was the last movie that we watched um, for a grade in that film analysis class. And I remember just when it ended, there was just this feeling of, like, I don't fully understand, like, what happened in this movie. But I know it's one of my new favorites. And it was. I watched it like immediately two days later again and I understood it more. I watched it, I've seen it like five times, and each time you pick up on new things. Um, it's a great romance. Um, it's my favorite romance of the decade, that and and broke back. Um, Jim Carrey gives probably like I think of the dramatic films personally, I think it's his best. I know you love Truman Show. I'm a big yeah, big uh, Truman Show fan. <laughs> uh, but uh uh, Kate Winslet, one of my favorite actresses, and just the creativity and how original it is and tapping into something emotional that we can all relate to about you know being erased and uh, the, what we will do for, for love and a human connection. And also to see so many people in early on in their careers, Elijah Wood, Tom Wilkinson, Kate Winslet and Mark Ruffalo are in there. Uh, it's great cast and it moves like it never stops. It just like just keeps going uh, and it's great. Also, David Cross has the best line in the movie when it's silent. He's just like, anyone got a joint? Like, that's <laughs> it. It's great. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I love Eternal Sunshine. Cool. Um, so my number seven is uh, another documentary. Uh, Grizzly Man. Uh, yeah. Werner Herzog. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which I, I'm pretty sure I may have made you watch in film class when you had me. <laughs> we watched we watched part of it, okay. but I would seen all of it beforehand. Mm-hmm. Um. Well, I mean, I love Werner Herzog. He's another one of those documentarians that kind of takes documentary to a whole different place than, you know, what we normally think of as documentary. Um, and this film in particular, you know, it's it's all of this footage that he didn't shoot um, compiled with his, you know, really dismal voiceover. Yes, <laughs> um, <laughs> which, you know, if anyone ever narrates a, a film of my life, I want it to be Werner Herzog. Absolutely. Because um, he's just awesome. Uh, yeah, so I, it's just one of those things, like, I love that film. I could watch it over and over again, and it always just like, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> um, yeah, but I, I do love that film. 
Yeah, it's a really great documentary. That's all. It's and because of what you said, it is a very strange one because it's not his own footage. I mean, like part of it is when he's like interviewing people, but then it's mainly focused on obviously Timothy Treadwell's, um, you know, descent into uh, grizzly territory. Um, it's such a fascinating story. I feel like one that like completely was forgotten, and then Herzog like just brought it back, and it's it's so like by the end of it, you you do feel like really bad. Like you, it, it is very emotionally resonant. Um, but I don't think anyone could have made that documentary like Herzog did. I am also a big Herzog fan documentaries and his drama stuff is, is really great. Uh, you know, it's America's favorite German, just making <laughs> fantastic. <laughs> uh, yeah, great pick one. I actually completely forgot about it. Um, but I haven't seen it in a very long time, but I do remember watching it as a kid, like around like when I was like maybe 10 and I was like, wow, this is really interesting. And just, it's almost one where you're like, I kind of want to go be with the grizzly bears. And then you realize, ah, that's probably nah, not probably. what you should be doing. <laughs> not a good plan. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's always exciting when documentarians can just add a whole new breath of fresh air to documentaries because I've watched a lot of documentaries that just feel kind of the same like they feel very formulaic they, they they're they're fine but they just cover their subject pretty straightforward but then you watch one like one that's not from this decade but that I love is The Act of Killing from uh, the 2010s that movie the, like was just one of the most mind-blowing documentaries to me just the way it's filmed and like the way it covers its subject um so yeah it's always exciting to see you know I think that really I think documentary kind of gets a bad rap. People assume boring or just, you know, very like, oh, interview B-roll, interview B-roll. And I think starting with, you know, Herzog and Michael Moore 20 years ago, you know, they're kind of bringing in this new kind of wave of documentary. And now I think that we're really in like kind of a golden age of documentary content, not just in, you know, feature length documentaries, but all of these series that are coming out that are just, you know, so great and where they actually take and are able to flesh something out over, you know, eight or 10 episodes. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and I think that the stylistically, I mean, I don't know if you've seen, you know, like the 13th or mm-hmm. Wild Wild Country. I mean, they're mm-hmm. like these amazing cinematic, engaging films that are, you know, I think a whole new a whole new wave of documentary content. And I think we have these other filmmakers to thank for that because they kind of broke the mold away from like your traditional kind of stuffy documentary. Yeah, for, for, yeah, for sure. And one that I always go to, the one that I loved as a kid, um, it actually probably should have been in my honorable mentions. It's one of my favorite documentaries. Is Man on Wire. Uh, that one itself is just that's just a movie. Like that's just a, that's just a movie. So like, yeah, the, why do they make the walk? Who yeah, <laughs> exactly. And uh, one that uh, really laid the groundwork because again, the film the filmmaking in that is just fantastic. And and now they they just pump them out on Netflix like it's a candy store. And it's like they're just yeah six six episode movies, and they're such a such a market for it now. I think that's why a lot of there were a lot of people when I was at Ithaca who were going into documentaries because there's such a field for it mm. now. Um, and this decade kind of yeah laid the groundwork for that. It's fantastic to see. Yeah, my next one is The Hurt Locker. Um, I really, really, really love The Hurt Locker because, and I think why I love it so much. I think I can also compare it to Nightcrawler in that I, I'm just supremely interested in movies that center around like a really interesting character and they delve into this character study of this hyper obsessed person. Um, I think, yeah, Nightcrawler and this would make a good double feature because of that, because you focus in on Jeremy Renner's character who's literally like addicted to being in war yeah. and in these situations that he gets himself into. Um, 
And he's a tragic character in that way just because he's so obsessed that it like you know kind of ends up ruining his life. But um, I, I think it's an incredible film. I just love the way it's shot. Uh, I know it seems like lately a lot of people prefer Zero Dark Thirty, but this one just affects me so much more deeply than that. Um, uh, it, you know, it won Best Picture, which is awesome. First female to win Best Director. I love Catherine Bigelow. I love her work. Um, it's it's just such a good movie, and I, I just I don't see enough people talking about it anymore, and that makes me really sad. Um, I'm guessing probably because I think at the time it was the lowest grossing Best Picture winner ever, and I think it still is. Um, so just not a lot of people saw it at the time or have still seen it, but I just I think it's so good, and Anthony Mackie's great in it, and I I just I really enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that one suffered from it. It came out at the wrong time. Yeah, I think it could have like probably a year earlier or even like even a year later. I think just because what was that that was 2009. Yeah, right. Okay, so like. Um, and Glorious Bastards, Avatar, like big, big movies are coming out that year. And uh, and yeah, it, it is a very good movie. I would like to revisit it because I, don't, I definitely don't love it as much as you do. Right. Um, but yeah, Renner's performance is great. Anthony Mackie was actually like a standout for me. Yeah. But like even the little, like the smaller characters, Ray Fiennes is in it, Guy Pierce is yeah, in it. Yeah, when they show up, it's like, what? <laughs> the first time I ever watched it, when Ray Fiennes showed up, I'm like, what is he doing yeah, here? Literally. Like, what? He's got an American accent. Oh, yeah. love Ray Fiennes. Um, but yeah, yeah. Uh, Great pick. And yeah, absolutely. Great that Catherine Bigelow won for it was, it just I really like for her that she got to stick it to James Cameron and beat the big blockbuster, you know? Like, <laughs> That's exactly what I was going to say. I'm like, oh, that was, I mean, as far as like memorable Academy Awards, like that was up there. Yeah. Um, you know, just not only first female to win Best Director, which for me still being in film school at that time was kind of amazing and inspiring and it's frustrating that there still hasn't been another since then um but yeah watching her stick it to james cameron for avatar which is like you know yeah yeah. (laughs) it would have been so frustrating if you won again after winning for oh my god because i mean while i don't mind avatar i loathe titanic so i'm I'm glad that he didn't win again for Avatar. i'm the exact opposite i don't mind titanic i loathe avatar (laughs) um but uh okay so my number six one we're definitely going to be talking about uh in a little bit um so i'll try and be as brief as i can that's no country for old men uh, a movie that uh, you and I kind of bonded over like really, cl- really quickly, like when we first became friends. Uh, I'm a huge Coen Brothers fan, uh, and this is, I think, their masterpiece. Uh, I also love Cormac McCarthy as a writer, and so to see the just this very bleak um, but very bright story, like the way that it's filmed, it looks fantastic. Obviously, Roger Deakins' incredible cinematography. Um, but the writing is so rich. All three performances by Josh Brolin, Tommy Lee Jones, and uh, Javier Bardem, who created one of the mo- the modern movie villains and yeah. one of the more classic, um, just so disturbing and just gritty villains who is also just so intoxicating at the same time because you can't help but watch him. You're just like, oh my God, wait, is he going to get like, uh, like, he's just, he's so great. And his whole arc and like his position in the story is just crazy. He has the you know the the, cr- the weird haircut, the little smirk, um, and you're just rooting for you know Josh Brolin to get away. But you're also like, I want to have them meet, you know. And the, obviously, the way that the film concludes uh, is just so it just is such a punch in the gut. Yeah. Um, and I love when a movie can do that. And obviously, you no know, music. It's just one of the most. It's one of the best movies with filled with tension. And it, it just it never stops, and it's so rewatchable because of that. And exactly. so I, I love No Country for Old Men. And yeah, we'll be yeah, talking. I'll about say it. I'll save my thoughts for later. But 
So, yeah, I mean, that one for me, I think I, it didn't quite make it into my top 10, but, mm-hmm. you know, I it was a tough call on that one. I mean, the Coen brothers really killed it that decade. I mean, yeah. I, I was like, okay, I just want to just pull up a list of theirs. Like, so, oh, brother, we're out, though. Um, uh, intolerable Cruelty, um, No Country for Old Men, Burn After Reading, A Serious Man, True Grit. Um, you know, it's like, well, that True, True Grit is 2010, so sorry, but, just asked. <laughs> but, yeah. but I mean, like, what a stacked list of films, you know, and they're, uh, they're all solid. They're all really good. So And so different, too. Like, yeah, and they bring yeah. just their brand of dialogue. There's like a hundred quotable lines in uh, No Country. It's mm-hmm. just, uh I love it. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So my number six, and I promise this is my last documentary. Um, <laughs> Lost, that. No, it's <laughs> Lost in La Mancha. Oh, <laughs> nice. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which, I mean, I love Terry Gilliam. I love him oh, so yeah. much. But watching this train wreck of oh, a film God. production, there's something horrifying and really satisfying about it all at the same time. Um, and, you know, for years since this documentary came out, I screened it, I think in pretty much every year of teaching film that I did. So for like two semesters for 10 years. Um, so I've seen this film a lot of times and, you know, I was so happy that he finally got to make the film. Yes. That was like a real win. And it was so good. It was a great yeah. film, <laughs> but yeah, I, I love watching this. It's just a train wreck and yeah. it's so enjoyable. <laughs> Yeah, I agree. It's it's very, you know, for just for so long that that movie was just trapped. It was just so like it was devastating because you could tell how passionate Terry Gilliam was, and uh, obviously the film is the man who killed Don Quixote, and uh, it was just constantly like, yep, we're never gonna see this. It's the one of the best movies never made, you know. But like the fact that just you know a couple years ago he finally got it to premiere at um, I think the Venice Film Festival is so inspiring like that in and of itself is just to test like whether you like the movie or not he he persevered and made so many other crazy movies since then so I tip my hat to Terry Gilliam and just like what an incredible documentation of like the worst luck that you can Mm -hmm. have on a film set I mean it just it's one thing after another doomed from like production day one, you know, yeah. it's yeah. So I, I promise that's my last documentary. No, it's, it's yeah, totally please fine. Add the <laughs> we like I, to- I, I ne- unfortunately don't watch enough documentaries, I think. So it's good. It's good to have some more of that. Cause I haven't seen that, but I obviously know the story there mm-hmm. and um, yeah, it, it's good to see that he got that done. Cause I do love his, a lot of his movies. Brazil is one of my faves. Um, yeah. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> All right. What do I got next? Um, my number six is my favorite comedy of the decade and maybe my favorite comedy of all time, and that's Zombieland. <sighs> um, I've seen this movie an uncountable amount of times, which is why I've taken a long hiatus from it because I don't want to get sick of it. Um, and I don't want to, because now I know every single joke in line. So I, I, I'd like to take a nice long break before I go back to it, but I just adore this movie. Um, it's, yeah, the hardest I laughed the first time I saw it. Just so many incredible moments uh, and the chemistry between the main four uh, is just really, really good. Uh, obviously, Bill Murray showing up is iconic. Um, it did for zombie films, I think in America, what Sha- Shaun of the Dead did for you know a British audience and obviously some Americans that saw it. Um, and I think you could, th- that would be a good double feature. I'm always yeah. thinking of double features. <laughs> I should run a drive-in. Um, but uh, I, I love Zombieland. It's, it's so, so funny. There's so many great lines. And yeah, just the interaction between 
uh, Jesse Eisenberg and Woody Harrelson, like when they first meet, is probably some of my favorite stuff. Um, my dad very much loves Woody Harrelson's character because he hates co- coconut for the texture, not, yes, or the <laughs> yeah, the consistency, not the flavor. Uh, so he really relates to that. But yeah, just a really funny movie. I think everyone should see it because I think everyone would think it's funny. Yeah, absolutely. It's a top three comedy for me. Uh, it wasn't on my it wasn't on my list, but it was in my honorable mentions. It was hard not to put it on there. But so many quotable lines. Uh, and again, to see the, the main four, Abigail Breslin, Emma Stone, Jesse Eisenberg, Woody Harrelson, is just like a match made in heaven. And it was one that, I, again, my stepdad and my brother went to go see it like a couple times. And it was one that was like, what am I going to be old enough to see it? Like, yeah. I want to see it. And finally, just a couple years later, I got to it. And it was, it was one of those where it was, it was just as good as I thought it was going to be, like when I imagined it in my mind. It was, it was, it's so much fun. And yeah, just the whole idea of the rules is so clever. And I mean, it was initially developed to be a TV series and they went with the movie and they tried to make the TV, TV series that failed. Uh, I still haven't seen the second one, but I've heard like it's it's okay. I, I very much enjoyed it. I think I saw it at the right time because I was very stressed the night that we went to go see it, and it was just what I needed to kind of just relax. Yeah. It was so it was very fun. But the first one is just it's it's kind of a lightning in a bottle. Like everyone at the right time, mm. it's the perfect length. It's like an hour twenty. It's not even an hour thirty, and it's so fast and and yeah, it just it moves really really well. Yeah, it's got good pacing. Mm-hmm. I think that's such a good point too to like make sure that we include comedies because it's easy when you, when you're talking about film, you know, film in yeah. <laughs> quote film in quotation marks, you know, especially if you go to film school, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's easy to talk about just the serious films or the ones that were kind of like history making or whatever. But we forget that like the kind of original intent of film was the escape, you know, and film Mm -hmm. really got its boom during the great depression. It was like the affordable luxury that people had. And, you know, so I think comedy kind of gets the shaft once in a while because, you know, they don't aren't necessarily like these major contributions to cinematic history, but, you know, I think it's, it's a, it's what an amazing gift I think mm-hmm. the film the escape for you know two hours or whatever is especially if you get to go to the theater and see it and you're not like even in your home anymore I yeah so I, I appreciate that you put comedies on your list yeah unfortunately that's my last one and I you know I think that is what what you were describing is kind of why it's not in the top five is because those movies just hit me on a whole other level. And, you know, you're never going to walk out of a comedy and be like, the cinematography was yeah. top. Like, <laughs> it just isn't, the, the you know, what, what the focus is in those mm-hmm. types of movies. But I still love a good comedy and appreciate when they, they do their job to make me laugh. <laughs> yeah. And that one, too, I think is perfect for now because it's like everyone is making the absolute best out of the worst possible scenario that they could be in. You know, the world is ending, a zombie apocalypse, and they still manage to, you know, make jokes and just be like, you know, do you want to know how hard I can punch? Like, so oh, good. you almost done well, I mean, alcohol with your knife. <laughs> I mean, let's talk about like, like, you know, the beginning of the pandemic. What was the biggest thing that came? Tiger King. Yeah. yeah people were just like, oh, yeah, let's like... Let's like yeah. escape into somebody else's crazy ass reality for a little while. You Absolutely. know, it's like we need those, I don't know, kind of those getaways, especially Indeed. now. <laughs> yeah, I'm all for escapism in film. If you like realism, that's fine, but escapism all the way. Um, all right, my number five, complete opposite 180 from uh, Zombieland is a, <laughs> is one of the most technically uh, fantastic movies that I've ever seen. Uh, I purposefully didn't put it to Mama Tebian on my list because I needed another Koran movie on there. And that's my number five is Children of Men. Uh, one of my all-time favorites. It's, we, we've talked about it. Uh, we, it was, we've talked about it this podcast. It was the yeah. first episode you were on for. Uh, it's, 
Yeah, there, there's not a whole lot I can add to that conversation. Just uh, the cinematography, Emmanuel Lubetsky is genius, and all the long takes, the car, um, the running scene at the end is just insane. Um, but it's also the the story is so well you know crafted and executed because it all happens like very much in sequence. There's not a lot of time breaks. It, you're just with these you know, characters for like three quick days of just absolute hell, and it's it's disturbing and it's crazy to watch. But also, I mean, the whole ending with with the baby and their tent, like everything just stops. Uh, and you know, I, I wish Clive Owen was in more things. Yeah, I, we were just talking about uh, you know Clive Owen, and mm-hmm. I, I love him in this movie and a lot of the other stuff that came around this time. But he's kind of disappeared from the you know leading movies, unfortunately. Yeah, uh, but. It, it's also just such a great, like, it's very entertaining, but it's also, you know, again, thought-provoking about, um, you know, it, it, Clive Owen is this guy who just kind of wants to be, like, completely disconnected from everything. He doesn't want anything to do with this, and then he just gets forced into that. Uh, and it's it's so bleak, but it's also just, you know, you can't help but get sucked it, sucked into it. And I love seeing the journey. And so, uh, yeah, I it's one of my all-time favorites, so it has to be on the list. Indeed. For sure. Uh, so my number five is uh, Requiem for a Dream. Hey. <laughs> that, was a, that was a late cut for my honorable mention, but I probably could have it on there. It's just, you know, ultimately one of the most depressing films. Oh, my God. <laughs> you can watch. Um, but I think it really put Aronofsky on the map. I mean, it defined, I think, his not only his style of filmmaking, but a whole generation's style of filmmaking. I mean, the way that he cut his films, the you know, and if you if you had seen Pi before that, um, you know, you would recognize a lot of the same stuff, but I think the majority of people have not seen Pi, um, but a lot of people have seen Requiem for a Dream. And I think that those two films kind of really demonstrate, I think, where where Aronofsky took the film industry and took, you know, that that style of really quick cutting um, and these kind of like psychedelic montage sequences um, and some really dark storytelling. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm kind of now regretting not having it on my honorable mentions because it's, it's my go-to for the argument of like, I think a lot of people value rewatchability the most in, in films, but that movie I never need to see again, but it's stuck with me. Like I can remember every single moment. Um, I think Ellen Burstyn gives one of my all-time favorite film performances, and it's a crime she didn't win that year. Not that it's all about the Oscars. I always go back to them, but it's not yeah. always about that. <laughs> but she's incredible, heartbreaking. Jared Leto's great. Jennifer Connelly's great. Even Marlon Wayans is. They're all, you know, and the, the way it ends and climaxes is perfect. Um, it's yeah, a really important piece of pop culture because like you hear Lux Eterna everywhere. The the shot of the eye you see everywhere it being uh, replicated. Um, it's, it's, it's the best drug PSA you'll ever see. Oh yeah, literally. <laughs> and it's, it's the, yeah, it's, that's one. I think after I watched it, I watched that in seven close together. And like both times after I finished the movie, I went and watched like an episode of 30 rock after. Cause I'm like, I need to like, Oh my God, I need like something to make me laugh. Cause like you finish those movies and you're like, why am I alive? Yeah, literally. Oh uh, yeah. So I, I had already movie. seen the film when I was in film school, but at the time in at Ithaca College, I was taking a film theory course, and the class it was on a Friday afternoon. Um, it was like a three hour class on a Friday afternoon, and we would always watch these films. And he showed Requiem for a Dream right before Thanksgiving break. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so <laughs> that was like that was my last class before I got to leave, and so like. 
I, you know, and I was commuting. So I had a whole hour long drive home just to like think about this film. And then I had to write like a paper about it. And I'm like, man, like, that's not how I wanted to spend my Thanksgiving break. But yeah. yeah. I have a <laughs> it very stays similar with sto- you. <laughs> yeah. I have a very similar story to that because when I first watched it, I think I was like 15. And afterwards, I was like, yeah, it's fantastic. I never want to watch it again. And then I also took this past semester a film theory course where the professor showed it right before Valentine's Day. And, nice. <laughs> and it was at night. And as soon as, you know, it ends and he just turns on and goes like, all right, so the homework is on the on the table. Have a good weekend. We were just like, uh, and it was one. It was even worse. The I mean, it, it's fantastic, but it was so much harder to watch the second time. Like just because you notice more things. And I was thinking about like you know my family, and it was just like, oh my god. But yeah, uh, I love Aronofsky, and I think that's the one where he yeah he really put himself on the map with that. I do really enjoy Pi, but I think that one was even more like accessible but also not at the same time it's it's strange yeah. but <laughs> it's just like Pi showed like what he could do but then he really got to flesh that with requiem mm-hmm. and uh, it's it's funny you well i think it shows what he can do with like a budget and you know yes. good mm-hmm. actors and like you exactly. know all, and, and yeah you can even almost compare it to like nolan with the uh following and then uh, memento just being able to get a bigger budget more complex story um, yeah, I love Aronofsky. The Found is actually the only movie of his I haven't seen. I've seen all the rest of his, so I got to check that one out. Um, yeah, he's great. Yeah, uh, one of my personal favorites. Um, all right, cheers. Oh, it's mine. Yeah, yep. I'm looking at you. Like, uh, okay, my number five is one that I didn't think I would have higher on my list, and Josh would have higher in his, uh, which is There Will Be Blood. Um, Josh said everything you need to say about it. It's it's my all time favorite p- film performance in um, Dana Day Lewis. I think some people would maybe watch it and think he's over the top and hammy, but I don't feel that way because it feels so genuine for this character, this larger-than-life person. Um, and I love doing an impression of him to my parents. I do it all the time where I'm like, I'm Daniel Plainfield. I'm an oil man. This is my son, H.W. Uh, I, love, I love that performance so much. That movie is so, so good. Um, yeah, the cinematography, the editing, the score, everything about it is just like, I feel like every film fan has seen it because it's just it it, it stands atop uh, you know the Mount Rushmore film for mm-hmm. a reason because it's just so damn good. Um, and Paul Dano too. Also, not to forget Paul Dano is also incredible. Um, I just yeah I love everything about that movie. It's 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 like addicting. It's a movie that I think a lot of people wouldn't find rewatchable, but I do because I just love the pacing of it and I mm-hmm. love how it all <clears throat> comes together. Um, and this again, I, uh, another really obsessed madman. I guess I just really do like these types of yeah. movies, you know, like um, the character studies of these crazy obsessed people. So yeah, I mean that's kind of the great thing about Paul Thomas Anderson. He's kind of leaned into that more since Punch Drunk Love is just the uh, like obsessive man character. You know, Adam Sandler and Punch Drunk Love, Joaquin Phoenix in The Master, um, and. Uh, and even recently, Daniel Day-Lewis again in Phantom yeah, and, Thread. But he does a different thing each time because in The Master, it's like alcoholism. In Phantom Thread, it's like work at, workaholic. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's Success interesting. Driven. Yeah, yeah. And then you know, Phantom Thread is an artist story. Um, and yeah, so and There Will Be Blood, I think, yeah, is definitely the absolute most obsessed and just a horrible, horrible person. Yeah. But so, and it's like it captures the time really well. It, it does. feels timeless. And yeah, it, it's the basic pick to say it's my favorite Paul Thomas Anderson, but it just definitely is. Mm-hmm. Um, even though I also love Phantom Thread and the Master, um, I, th- I think it's my favorite, and it's just so good. Yeah. All right, lean into the top four. 
Uh, my number four is uh, probably one, I don't know if you were expecting this, uh, but my number four is my favorite animated movie of the decade, one that I've always loved. That's The Incredibles. Yeah. Uh, it's my favorite. It's my favorite Pixar movie. I said Ratatouille is in my honorable mentions, uh, but The Incredibles just uh, was so special to me as a kid because it was, I've always loved superheroes and seeing, you know, a whole new team, but also a really great family movie. And it showed that Pixar can uh, just tell human stories because it's all, it's all people in that movie. It's not like there's no, it's not anthropomorphic fish or anything like, <laughs> anything yeah. like that. It's um, just a really... Uh, and also Brad Bird is just one of the best filmmakers working today. His dialogue in that movie is so, so good. And it's still so fun because, you like, again, you watch it the first time and you think, like, oh, wow, this is fun. You know, superheroes kicking ass. Like, yeah, let's go. And then, you know, as I grew up, I realized, oh, this is actually, like, much deeper and almost darker than I had expected with, you know, just killing superheroes and, you know, people pretending to be one and giving everyone the special powers. It's like, wow, this is actually really crazy. Um, but, and it's one that I always go back to. It's, like I said, it's my favorite Pixar uh, and one of my favorite animated movies of all time. I love The Incredibles. Also, uh, the score is incredible. Michael Giacchino. Yes. My boy. <laughs> Yeah, no, you pointed out that, you know, the, the dialogue being really good. I'm pretty sure it was nominated for screenplay, which mm-hmm. almost never happens. I think uh, Pixar is the only, like, company that has animated films nominated for screenplay. And uh, there's a reason for that is because they get really good talent on the, their movies. And, uh, yeah, cool pick. Yeah, I, I love The Incredibles. <laughs> awesome. Uh, so my number four, uh, it's it's kind of a tie. I guess it's more a director. So we're going to go with Children of Men, Alfonso Cuaron. Um, and... Y mamá también. Y tu mamá también. Oh, my God. Yeah. I can't. Like, um, yeah. So I think both of those films for me are, like, right up there. They're so different from the same. I mean, I guess that's one thing that always kind of, like, blows my mind with him as a director is that, like, every film is so different than the last one and so different than other things he's done in the past. Like, you know, he doesn't, it's kind of like he, he does a thing and then he's done with it and like moves on to something else. Um, Children of Men, I think is just not only an amazing story, like we said before, but like just cinematography wise, it is a artistic masterpiece, you know, just, Mm -hmm all of the coordination and the the technical stuff that goes into doing it. Like if you've ever watched the behind the scenes for how they actually like film this. I mean, it boggles my mind to watch that. (laughs) I'm just like, I can't even imagine. I can't imagine like, oh, we're going to spend millions of dollars a day trying to do this like crazy thing that in the end is like a one minute payoff. (laughs) I'm like, who has the guts to do that? Yeah. You know, he does. Mm hmm. Absolutely. Uh, one thing I didn't mean to say when I mentioned Children of Men is I think what's great about Koran, just as a filmmaker, I mean, he's an incredible writer, he's an incredible director, but what he really leans into, much like PTA with the um, obsessive quality of his characters, uh, Koran seems to like really focus on like childhood and like childhood innocence. That's prevalent in a lot of his movies, especially Itu Mama Tebian being a uh, really great coming of age story and Children of Men being about like the... Uh, how sacred life is because everyone is, you know, infertile. Um, but then when he does something like gravity, it feels completely different because it's void of that. It, do- it doesn't focus on that. Um, and I, that's why I loved Itu Mama Tebien so much because you're like, these people are just slowly growing further and further apart as this story goes. And it's, it's heartbreaking. Yeah. But again, he does the whole thing with like the, 
uh, the politics of Mexico at the time, and that's in the, uh, the background of the whole movie. The great voiceover that just makes it even more <laughs> depressing. But it's he's one of my favorite filmmakers. And so I be. actually got to see that film when I was living in Mexico. So I was an exchange student at that time. So <laughs> when that film wow. came out, it was you know it was in the theater. So I got to go see it in the theaters. And I remember like, you know, it was, I think it might have been the first film that I actually saw in Spanish with no subtitles. Mm -hmm. Um, So (laughs) that was like a whole other experience for me. And, uh, you know, at the same time that I was living there, there were like Harry Potter movies that came out and like, I want to say, well, they came out later in Mexico than they would have come out here. So I think, I don't know if it was the first or second Harry Potter that came out and The Matrix and like all these other like kind of you know, big films came out Mm -hmm. later in Mexico when I was living there. And I only ever got to see them dubbed into Spanish, like not even subtitles, just straight dubbed in Spanish. (laughs) And it's funny. So like a lot of my memories of these like kind of major franchises are kind of a bastardized version of them. Nice. funny. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it's funny that mentioning Harry Potter, because obviously he directed Prisoner of Azkaban, which was on my honorable mentions. So like the fact that they chose him to, and the thing he directed right before that was Itumama Tambian, like what a brave choice. Yeah. By um, uh, Warner Brothers, does Harry Potter right? Mm-hmm. Um, like, such a brave choice, and I, I, I think that's why Harry Potter stands out among every other young adult thing is because they, they like, and especially that Prisoner of Azkaban is because they picked him, uh, and they wanted him to do the fourth, but then he went and made Children Men, so I'm very happy he I mean, made I'm that decision. That, yeah. Um, but I always imagine, like, I love Goblet of Fire, but if he got to direct that too, or hell, if he did the whole series, which obviously he wouldn't have done because you know he wants to do his visions, obviously, um, but. Yeah, he's he's great. Yeah, big big fan. All okay, right. my number four. It's mm-hmm. funny you had an animated film for number four because I do as well. My favorite animated film of the decade and of all time is Howl's Moving Castle. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> I love anime, and there's no, that's no secret. <laughs> I've mentioned that on this podcast before. Um, my my big passions in life, film and anime. Um, and Hayao Miyazaki is the greatest animator of all time, d- director wise. You can have your Disney. I'll take my Miyazaki. Um, Spirited Away is the typical pick for like the best. And if I worked for like a magazine and I had to make a list, I would say Spirited Away is the best. But personally, Howl's Moving Castle just has this quality of nostalgia every time I return to it that I, I just, it's hard for anything else to capture that for me because of the, you know, the age I was when I saw it. Um, the score is incredible. The, the, the way the story progresses is beautiful. I've always wanted to go back and read the book it's based on, but um, from forum posts I've read, a lot of people say it's a really faithful adaptation. Um, and I think it changes a lot, but it still like captures the essence, which I think is a, a good thing to do in an adaptation, is not to be you know word for word, but to get the, the, the essence and the morals of the story. Um, I'm very much used to the dub, the Disney dubs, which are really, really good because Christian Bale is Howell, and you got Gene Simmons in there, and you got Billy Crystal. Billy Crystal's hilarious as Kelsifer the Fire Demon. Um, just really good voice cast. And it's not so much that they were just picking big names, it's like they picked big names that really worked. Because what's funny, a lot of people point out that like his Howl voice, like his monster Howl voice, is just his Batman voice, which is kind of true, and it's pretty funny to think of it that way. But anyway, I um, I just adore Howl's Moving Castle um, and Spirited Away. Spirited Away could have also been in my honorable mentions, but I figured since I was going to mention it now anyway, 
Um, just his ability to capture also, also childhood innocence um, with this this girl that has to age up immediately, literally ages up uh, and cursed as an old woman, and just how, what that does to her, just the journey she goes on, and in Spirited Away, the journey that character goes on, Chihiro. Um, I, I just truly think he's, I mean, he's in my top five directors because I think he's just a, a genius um, and I will gush about him all day yeah. <laughs> if you ask me to. I love Miyazaki. I love Ghibli films. Uh, yeah, there you have it. <laughs> when I first told Matt I had never watched Howl's Moving Castle in like high school, he said, you're not going to watch it unless I'm there. And so the first time I watched it was we got together. Yeah, and we watched in your it basement. Together. Yeah. That yeah. <laughs> no, was at your house. Oh, I was? Oh, sure. Um, you're right. But it, um, <laughs> Like, that's important information. You are not uh, the only <laughs> friend I've made watch Howl's Moon Castle. I've done that with, like, three or four others because <laughs> I love it so much and I just want to see how other people love it. Uh, it was really great when I shared it with my girlfriend that she loved it as much yeah. as I do because she does not like anime and makes fun of me constantly for it. Uh, <laughs> lovingly, of course. But she also really liked it. So I think it's just a movie that... Um, it's just gorgeous, and yeah, it's it's, uh, it's amazing. It's so fantastical, but also grounded. Yeah. Like it feels like you could get lost, and like you feel part of that world at the same time. Like that's kind of why, like my favorite Ghibli movie is Kiki's Delivery Service, for kind of that exact reason as well. Um, it feels like okay, it's 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 just a witch, and she has her own delivery service. That seems like kind of that's that's pretty crazy but also it's it's so believable and because the characters are just like these are literally just people mm -hmm. um and the writing is so great and yeah howls is one of my favorites too yeah just one more quick thing i'll say about the score and just that i how much i love joe hisashi's scores um and just again i always bring it back to the oscars but the, clearly they don't see enough movies like this or they think i think a lot of Older people think animation is just for kids. But like if they had actually watched these movies and realized how good the score is, those should have been nominated and probably won. Because I think watching both Spirit Away and Howells and seeing how Spirit Away has the more traditional Japanese score and then Howells is a lot more Western because the setting is kind of, you know, evokes like, you know, uh, England at a certain point or like Sweden almost like in its pastoral landscapes. And his ability to just have two completely different scores in like such a short time. Um, and capture both, like just really, uh, the scores to me are so emblematic of the movies. And I love, like, it almost makes me want to cry whenever I hear uh, One Summer's Day, which is from Spirit Away, just because it's just, it's, that's how much music can affect movies and I, mm -hmm. how much I think uh, scores are important to filmmaking. There you have it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's it for today. Uh, <laughs> no. Uh, all right. So, top three, my number three um, is one, again, my, I mean, my top, like, seven are like some of my all-time favorites that's why this list was a little hard to make uh but number three is one that has stuck with me ever since i first watched it as a teenager when i was 14 and another one from 2009 that i've been waiting to see for a very long time and that's inglorious bastards um my favorite tarantino film one that has two of the best movie scenes i think ever that i've seen in the opening uh with the dairy farm and then the bar scene uh halfway through it's just a testament of how good of a, a writer he is with his crazy characters. And also, uh, you want to talk about supporting performances. I think uh, uh, Hans Landa, played by Christoph Waltz, is one of the best movie villains we've had in a very long time. And also just a revelation. You know, no one really, he wasn't really on anybody's radar until this movie. And the fact that he won the Oscar is, you know, fantastic as just this very just evil, but also... Uh, very like, so likable, so likable uh, Nazi. It's very strange. Yeah, it's like you made me like a Nazi. Yeah. Stop. <laughs> um, and it's just, uh, it's so filled with tension, but also is extremely fun because Brad Pitt is just, you know, <laughs> um, bad in a thousand. He's fantastic uh, as Aldo Rain, and 
it's it's one that I do I do really love to go back to because I mean again everyone can talk you could talk about Tarantino for hours and hours but that's the one to me that I feel like he really you know hit the mark and you can go back to and um, look at it in different ways and there's obviously been a lot of criticisms uh, about it even since it came out but I I just love the progression of that story and how you know the um, Shoshana Dreyfus is one of my favorite uh, of his characters. She's fantastic, and Diane Kruger is also really great. And yeah, it's it's it feels very different for him, but it, it definitely feels like I mean, at the end when Aldo's like, I think this just might be my masterpiece. I think it is. It's my favorite of his, and just it's just filled with great drama, uh, and obviously a revisionist history of how World War II um, ended. But he it it is a fairy tale in some way. It is a fantasy, and it's. Uh, it's just fantastic and, again, so entertaining and so much fun. Yeah, um, I think it's notable. I may as well mention that it's notable for me because I used to consider Inglorious Bastards one of my like top three favorite movies. Um, and I still love the film. It was in my honorable mentions. But upon my most recent rewatch, there were, I think, elements of the film that I think the pacing really suffers a little bit uh, with some of the Mel- Mel- I can't speak. Melanie Laurent and Daniel Brühl scenes. They kind of drag on. Uh, and I still love the movie because of the highs it reaches, I think, are higher than any of his other movies, except maybe Pulp Fiction. Um, but that's the reason it's not... It, normally, I think when we did this, you know, a, like a month ago, or maybe at this point, it was, it was like three months ago, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, it was in my top five. But just after I rewatched it more recently, it just... I still love it, but it just didn't... It, it, right, you yeah. know, I had questions about it, and I feel like these other top three, I have no questions about my love for them. So, right, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah, no, the, the bar scene is probably my pick for its top, top 10 movie scenes ever, just the way it, it culminates. And I love Fassbender and everything he does. Mm-hmm. Uh, great dialogue, too. Great dialogue, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Uh, well, I, I, I have no comment because I don't like Tarantino. <laughs> that's, so. No, that's fine. No, that's fine. <laughs> I know you don't. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, I'm the only person that doesn't like Quentin Tarantino. But You're definitely so, not, you I promise like, you. Can you just give a little yeah. bit why? I, I'm fine with Oh, that's a whole other podcast. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. I'm just going to go into my number four pick. That's fair. Or number three. Number three. We're yeah, top yeah. three. Uh, Life Aquatic. Oh, nice. Interesting pick. Yeah. So it was hard for me to actually pick between the Life Aquatic and Fantastic Mr. Fox, but I had to throw Wes Anderson well, into my Mr. top Fox. ten because he is one of my favorite filmmakers. Um, I really think that this film... Again, it defined kind of his style. This is really where, you know, there were other films before this, but I think The Life Aquatic was really the one where he kind of found his real, his groove, his, you know, the camera movement and the sense of humor, you know, it all just came together. And, you know, this amazing cast of people that just worked so well together. Um, Yeah, so it's one of my all-time favorite films, actually. That's one I also uh, haven't seen in the Wes Anderson filmography, but I've heard it's very polarizing for some people because of how like strange it is. But uh, I've also heard it's one of Bill Murray's best performances. Um, so I've yeah, been meaning to get um, around to it. I'm not trying to start a fight, but I, it is my least favorite of his because I think, well, I, I think you're right. I don't, I'm, I, you know, I'm, it's opinions are opinions, obviously. Um, I think you're right in that he does find his style there because if you watch, yeah, Rushmore and Royal Tenenbaums, they feel like him, but they don't quite feel like what we think of when you think of a Wes Anderson movie. So he definitely did find his style with uh, The Life Aquatic. I think he just kind of did it better with later films, like I th- Darjeeling or Moonrise Kingdom is my favorite. Um, and then it's not to say I hate Life Aquatic. I just think it's it, it's not his most successful in terms of 
what it captures. But I like the pick. Uh, it's my sister-in-law's favorite movie, I'm pretty sure. So we've wow. <laughs> I've argued with her about it. Um, so, yeah. I think, you know, at least for me, it may be like a bit of nostalgia more than anything else. Like, I wouldn't even argue it. it is my favorite film of his, but I wouldn't argue that it is his best. Right, right. Which I think, you know, that sounds contradictory, but I think it it's more of a nostalgia thing for this film for me um, than anything else. But mm-hmm. technically, yeah. you know, I think I would I would put other movies of his uh, above it, technical right. wise. But yeah. and not to say that there isn't a lot I love about it. Like I love when like parts of the, the submarine are like cut in half and you get to see like that all like the production design there I think is awesome the script um, is amazing though like yeah. it's it's really he, his dialogue is, good yeah, is never the problem with a movie certainly <laughs> you mentioned Fantastic Mr. Fox I love Fantastic Mr. Fox That's, yeah I just watched that recently too and that one still holds up so well it's just so I just love seeing his style in animation it's mm-hmm. just that and Isle of Dogs are just really really good yeah <laughs> Oh, that's me again. Yep. Sorry. I keep, I keep thinking it goes back to you. I don't know why. Okay. My number three is one we've already talked enough about, so I won't say too much more, but it's Children of Men. Um, this was definitely, I think, the biggest time I had a feeling of when I finally watched it. I was like, I wish I saw this sooner because it just was immediately after I finished it. I was like, this is just amazing. Um, you, you both have said everything I would say about it in that I think it's some of the best cinematography of all time. Um, the first time I saw the car chase scene I was like the, the, I have seen nothing else that is this like raw and like you just feel like you're in the action like my heart was racing and Quran can do that better than anyone else uh, because seeing gravity in the theater I don't think I breathed for 90 minutes which obviously isn't true but uh, <laughs> I, I have never been more breathless than I have with his movies between specifically gravity and children of men um, that final the the big shot at the end where they're going through the building and all the like it is just some of the most incredible filmmaking you'll ever see like oh my, I, like I think it's just such a treasure and treat that we have that movie that I'm alive to see that movie. Yeah, like that sounds so pretentious, but just I I adore Children Men and you both uh, yeah, yeah said everything I need to say. Mm-hmm. So one of the best. All right, my number two is a really really big film. Uh, obviously in terms of budget and uh, just cultural impact. Um, but also for me personally, it was one I've loved it ever since I first saw it back when I was ten years old. Uh, it's going to be no surprise um, to you, but my number two is one of my all-time favorite movies. It's The Dark Knight. Uh, I mentioned Christopher Nolan earlier, like the Dark Knight trilogy. Um, you know, he really changed superhero movies. Uh, some would say for the worse with Batman Begins, but that um, that movie just really made it in uh, made Batman darker and grittier and um, more human, and really got deeper into you know the the emotional issues that he was having. Um, but The Dark Knight took it to a whole other level of being just a really great uh, crime thriller, too. And I watched it hundreds of times at this point, just obviously for uh, Heath Ledger giving the best performance of the decade, in my opinion, as the Joker. Uh, rest in peace. Uh, and also, the, it was really fun to rewatch it um, recently because there were so many things about like Harvey Dent's whole character arc and Aaron Eckhart is giving an incredible performance in the rise and fall of his character. There's just so much going on in it, but it feels cohesive. Like it feels um, like it's all building to that ending that it, everything needed to be in place for, for it to work. Um, and some people say, you know, you can point out plot holes in any Nolan movie. Um, and I'm not going to disagree with that. Um, but I think the dark Knight is his best movie and one that 
I will always go back to. It's so much fun, but also just really well written and thought out and pushes the characters further and further. And it really doesn't stop. Like when I first saw it in the theater, I thought I thought it was going to end. And then there was 45 more minutes and I was like, oh, this is great. There's so much more. Uh, and so it, it was, a you know, I've always just been a diehard Batman fan. And so that one to me. And just the fact that, again, it, it is as well made as it is in terms of how Nolan directed it and his great, you know, the way he cross-cuts scenes and just, it, it's great. It's one of my favorites. And again, I can't stress this enough how good Heath Ledger is in that movie. So it always brings me back to childhood, but also is um, really great to look at in terms of how scenes are um, structured uh, and put into a cohesive story. Yeah, for sure. I I am not a superhero movie watcher. That's yeah. not my it's not my go to <laughs> genre. That I will say is one of the few that I do enjoy and mm-hmm. thought was excellent. Um, my number two, which we've already talked about, um, there will be blood. So you know, <laughs> I, I mean, I'm like I don't know what else we can say at this point. <laughs> it's yeah. Uh- I was scared at first. I was like, does she like There Will Be Blood? Is that <laughs> No, it was just way higher up on my list than yeah. you guys had. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it's yeah, no, we've, we've talked it to death at this point. But yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, my number two is, I'm going to cheat here, but it's the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Um, for me, I just, I think of them as one cohesive unit because when I watch one, I watch them all. Um, but these, the Lord of the Rings series, I'm not counting the Hobbit trilogy because I don't really like that. Uh, those three movies are to me what like Star Wars is to so many people and that like I watched them to death as a kid and I had the extended versions were the only ones we owned. So those are the ones I know best. So those are the ones I still go back to. Um, I think it, we're just so lucky that that adaptation didn't suck because if that adaptation was made today, like look at the Hobbit, it would have it would have been awful if it was anyone other than Peter Jackson and New Line doing it at the time and letting Peter Jackson film all three at once and do everything he needed to do and trust in that giving him a big budget wasn't going to be you know a huge failure and luckily they were very successful. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we're just I, I'm so grateful that those movies are good because that world is so interesting and I love it so much. Um, you know, I, I can talk about the Lord of the Rings movies yeah. all day. We just did a, a watch of all three of them. They are, I just think they're as good as like blockbuster gets, in my opinion. Um, I think the cast is perfect. Ian McKellen is, I think, the, the shining star because he just captures Gandalf so, so well. And um, yeah, I, I'm not going to talk about it too yeah. much because I think everyone has seen the Lord of the Rings probably, or if they haven't, they know the gist. It's it's just great. Yeah. I love them so much. They're, they're my childhood favorite. Yeah. I didn't get to see them until later in life and until I was like a freshman in high school. But I, it was one of the first times I remember when Return of the King came out, uh, realizing how big of a cultural phenomenon that those movies were when there were people that I know, like teachers and stuff who took off of work to go see Return of the King, like in theaters. Like I knew people who would do that. We had like a couple substitutes on that Friday, which is just insane. I was like, people can do that for a movie? Like what? (laughs) (laughs) Like it was, it was insane. And so, and when I finally got to watch them, I was like, oh, I totally understand why. Because I mean, I told you this, that like, yeah, if anyone else had done it, it could have been a disaster. But the way that they're technically, obviously the production value and the costumes is all great. But the way that Jackson actually directs them is so well done. It's like leaps and bounds better than any other um, series in terms of filmmaking qualities. And, uh, you know, we could talk about the score all day oh, if we I listen to that to. score all the time. Like, yeah. I, don't, I don't have to do much studying anymore now that I've graduated, but that was like, like going through all three of those was my go-to, like study music because it's just the best. Howard Shore is the man. Yeah, perfect trilogy. <laughs> all right. And here we are. 
We've done it. We've arrived to the top of the list. Uh, my number one uh, is we mentioned comedies earlier. This one's a bit of a different comedy. It's a dark comedy, but I it's still I still consider it a comedy because it does make me laugh very much. As much as it makes me cry, it is um, my not only my favorite of this decade. It's my favorite movie of all time, uh, and that's In Bruges. It's a movie that. Uh, is very special to me for a few different reasons. It's kind of special to me the same reason that No Country for Old Men is, is that I had a history professor in uh, high school who idolized those movies and um, befriended my stepdad because of his like for those movies as well. And they were ones that I had been wanting to see for so long. But the one thing I forgot to mention when we did No Country was that professor and I, Mr. Friend, we memorized the entire coin flip dialogue scene and we would do that like to each other and it was very fun. But uh, In Bruges was one I finally got to see when... Uh, the first time I did, I didn't really know that much about it other than, you know, Hitman hiding out in Bruges. And, uh, I mean, uh, Sully and I did a whole episode on it, but I'm going to gush over it again because I, I can't stress enough. It's my favorite movie of all time. It's so funny. It's, um, but then it can just make you just weep the next scene. The whole playground scene with Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson is uh, unbelievable. And their performances, their camaraderie is great. Ray Fiennes giving his best performance. Uh, and it's just, it's such a tight movie because it's all in you know the open spaces of Bruges, which is just beautiful. It's a very simple story, but obviously says a lot about you know what we do, who we are. Is, um, you know they're they're talking about hitmen and the morality of that, and uh, you know all about purgatory. It's just it's one that I go back to all the time to find something new, and I you know the scenes that I love just get better, and then the stuff that I missed before just it makes it so much more of a complete experience. And again, you know. I always love giving the little more indie movies a, a shout out. And so that one, I think it's gotten a little bit more traction recently because it's been on Netflix um, for the past, like... And, you know. and Three Billboards brought a lot of eyes to Martin McDonough. Yeah, and Three Billboards. Um, so I do, I it's it's my favorite. So I had to put it as my number one. It's a solid pick. I knew it'd be your number one. Yes. Yeah. But uh, I also, it was in my honorable mentions. I also love it. Dark comedies are some of my favorite uh, things ever. That's why I think Martin McDonough and Yorgos Lanthimos are like the masters of dark comedy because mm -hmm. between In Bruges and The Lobster, I just love blending like how dark you can make these characters get while also being hysterical. Like, I don't know, it's just genius to me when you can do that effectively. One of the best, and Colin Farrell is just uh, one Yeah, of and he's most, in both of those. Yeah, so exactly. I guess he just <laughs> finds those projects, you know? Yeah, so I mean, I've said everything there is to be said uh, from my personal feelings about the movie. So yeah, it's my favorite of all time. It had to be number one. Awesome. Well, we've kind of already talked about it, and you guys know that I like Aronofsky. So my number one is The Fountain. Nice. Um, <laughs> of course, which I didn't. I don't think we talked about the score before of The Fountain, Ooh. which uh, it's so good. It's one yeah. of the few scores that I've actually bought on CD <laughs> in the past, oh, nice. which is not even a thing anymore. Um, uh -huh. But you know, it's it's so it's just so good. If, and yeah. you know, if you haven't seen it, you gotta. You gotta see it. I'm sorry, I'll get rid yeah. of that. Yeah. No, I've I mean, literally seen every single other one of his movies, <laughs> even Noah. Why? I don't know why. We saw I, Noah together. <laughs> but that's the thing. Like for me, I'm like anything Aronofsky touches. Like I find some value in it, even right. if you don't necessarily like the whole film. You know, I didn't mind Noah. There, you know, I enjoyed it. I was like, oh, oh it's yeah, this cool it. marrying of like multiple perspectives on kind of the same story. Um, so you know, I. Mm -hmm. I yeah I watched the Fountain in, a, in that same film analysis class and I think that at that point that was also the only one of his that I hadn't seen and I was just like knocked out by how good it was like and also it was one of those where like 
I mean, I got everyone's instant reaction to it. And there were people in that class that just hated it. They were like, this is so pretentious and just like whatever. And I was like, I I really dug it. Like it was, it, it says a lot. It's very big concept, very high visuals. There's a lot going on. Um, but I loved Hugh Jackman's performance. He's the one of, I mean, he's one of my favorite actors. And I think that's one I think it's kind of overlooked a little bit. He's doing a lot in that movie. Uh, well, and and it's, it's like three different films too, because of the way that it is put together. You know, it's almost like three very different experiences. And I think, you know, that's, that's fun for me where you can take a long movie and kind of break it down into like smaller chunks, but it all still works together. And, you know, if you get a chance to watch the special features for that film, I mean, it's just super impressive. Um, You know, like the scenes, the kind of, astro space scenes those were all filmed in a petri dish like they're literally like chemical mm-hmm. reactions in a petri dish so while you look at it and you think oh my gosh those special effects are amazing it's not it's all practical and you're like yeah what i love <laughs> stuff like that like getting the behind the scenes look yeah yeah it's the same thing with like tree of life how they do the mm-hmm. the cosmic stuff is very interesting yeah. uh yeah and i think what's cool about that movie too is that i think every director like a lot of modern directors kind of have that one really big ambitious project that takes them years to create and um it's a good showcase like whether you like it or not it kind of showcases a good point as to where they are in their career like this with aronofsky took like so much time uh after what was the movie was this after requiem or was this, this is after right requiem but and it was like before, a good five or six years right yeah before That's the funny. wrestler so and i think that this movie it would again it was being so polarizing like i think this kind of put like a stank on his name for a while because so many people hated it and i Hmm. i want to say it was the wrestler that he had trouble getting funding for because the budget for the fountain was just like huge and it didn't make its money back and it was the whole Mm -hmm. thing yeah and not to mention they probably didn't want mickey rourke being a star of a movie like that (laughs) yeah that's also true his you know legal (laughs) history yeah um and but like as, as i was saying like that it shows like a good snapshot of his career and like how he wanted to do something big and he thought he could do it. And like, it clearly, you know, had a profound effect on him. And the next year when he does the wrestler, it's so much smaller. It's the same with like Paul Thomas Anderson, you know, he does boogie nights. It's a, um, you know, critical success, not like a box office success, but then he does Magnolia, which is super ambitious. And you can tell that that was his goal to do that film and make something very personal. And then the next thing he does after that is punch drunk love. So it's like, it's cool to see that, kind of progression of uh, someone's career. So I love The Fountain. I stand by it. I think it's great. So great pick. I'll, I'll get right on it. I promise. <laughs> I, I love Aronofsky. My pick for his favorite we talked about in this last episode, which was Black Swan. That was in my top 10 of the 2010s. So yeah, I, I love him and I need to get around to watching it. I'll I'll do that immediately. Okay, I'll, yeah. I'll do it tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us your number one first. Though. My number one, we've, you know, you mentioned before, and that's No Country for Old Men. Um it's also probably my favorite film of all time, either that or 2001 A Space Odyssey. It goes back and forth. Um, I love No Country for Old Men. I think it's just a cinematic masterpiece. Um, I've read the book also, and I think it does a great job at a- adapting the book uh, because I don't love the book. I'm not a huge fan of Cormac McCarthy's writing style. Um, so I think they took a, a, you know a, a, the book and just really brought it to life um, because a lot of the dialogue they lift directly from the book, but... Harvey R. Bardem, like being able to bring it to the screen, like in the coin flip scene, um, it's just it, they capture it so perfectly. Uh, it's brilliant cinematography, brilliant performances all around. 
Um, I just adore the movie. It's, it's, it's I find it endlessly rewatchable. Just the the pursuit of Josh Brolin by Anton Sugar uh, is you know, and he's just one of the most iconic characters ever. Using mm-hmm. like a cattle, uh, the the cattle bolt thing as yeah. a weapon is like you you would never have seen that. Like that's such a unique choice yeah. that Cormac McCarthy made. Um, I I just I love that movie. I think it's incredible. Yeah. Um. Yeah. For sure. It, yeah. It's, and also just the, um, the the way that it ends too is is bleak but perfect. You know, like when he walks off, then you get the two stories from. Tommy Lee Jones, and yeah. just the way that I'm sure some people were like, "What? It's over? Like what? Like?" But it it works so well for the movie. Like it, I agree because it serves as that like kind of like epilogue, like you know, like a book would have. Because a lot of people want the ending to be like a big final note, like boom, look at that. But like this one just ends so ends so subtly, like him reflecting on like, did it even matter? What did I accomplish? And you know, just thinking of the dreams he's had, and like you can interpret that to mean what you think it means, and just. Kind of like the like how helpless he feels at the end, and knowing that like your lead man, you know, didn't make it, and the villain got away. So like you feel for him as like helpless, and you know, in a world of bad things happening, what can you do? And so it's there's so much going on there, uh, you know, that, that it's so introspective that I love to think about it. And uh, yeah, mm-hmm. well, that's it. That's our those are our <laughs> picks for the top ten best of the decade of the two thousands. Before we go. I just want to kind of get um, some quick th- closing thoughts from each of you um, in doing this whole process and in moving forward. What do you feel the what do you feel like the 2000s decade in film is kind of a shining representation of? Um, is there anything that sticks out to you that when we look back on it, we can point out like this is what is important to us in film? And I, I kind of want to start with my answer because it's just on the tip of my tongue at this point. In rewatching everything. What was so what really stuck out to me is not necessarily the importance of films being rewatchable, but the importance of revisiting films. Um, specifically, like you know, we have done it like so many times with just this list of like, is my opinion the same? Like, has it changed? Like, did I forget something? Was there a performance that didn't stick out, but will stick out this time? It, it, I've always we talked about it on many episodes, like particularly Blade Runner, is that it's important to really like go back to certain films and see what you can get out of them with fresh eyes. And I think this decade itself, because the movies that really stuck out, like the big blockbusters kind of have been pushed under the rug a little bit because of how big, you know, um, you know, the Marvel films and DC films are today. Like, you know, the Spider-Man trilogy, the Dark Knight trilogy and Harry Potter and all of that, that we mentioned before. And like Bond was restarted then, but going back, there are just so many other ones that there's just so many gems to find. And also to, Again, maybe you thought, I, I didn't really like this. But then you go back with fresh eyes and you're like, wow, there was so many things that I didn't notice. Uh, and I've always found that it's important to not just end a film with one with one viewing. I mean, obviously, I, I have. I'm not saying I haven't done that with movies. But it's I just think it's so important to go back and really get, try and get something out of it. And if you don't, that's fine. But it's important to at least um, have with fresh eyes and, and search for something new. That's what this decade to me and doing all this is what I think is a good representation of, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. <laughs> you mentioned Bond briefly. I'm surprised you didn't have Casino Royale on your list. I do love Casino Royale. Don't get me wrong. But I had Skyfall on the last list, so I... Fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> I think for me, you know, like I said before, I have a really hard time 
ranking films because it's such a personal thing. Like each one may mean something different to me or, you know, hold a special place in my heart because of where I was at in my life when I saw it the first time. So like being able to say like, oh, this one's better than that one. Like, I, I don't know. They're just different. So I think for me, how I classify like the best films that I like, the films that are the best to me um, is how many times I can go back and watch them and get something new out of it each time, you know? And so there were a lot of films, I think, in this decade that like, yeah, I can go back and watch them, you know, multiple times or just watch them like a second viewing and feel like I learned something new or noticed something new or had a completely different take on it by the time the film was over and, you know, I want to watch it again, you know, just mm-hmm. to see what I missed because it's like, oh, if I missed that much stuff the first time, what am I going to pick up on the third or fourth or fifth viewing, you know? Um, and to me, those are the great filmmakers when they can work that much stuff into them. And, you know, seeing it one time isn't just enough. Right. And you bring in so many different experiences too. Like each time when you go back to revisit a film, like your entire life is being forced into like how you view this film. And so you, it can't help but be different, you know? And, you know, it, it, even down to like, oh, I didn't even notice that this shot was there. And like, that's something, it's changed how you feel about the movie, like entirely. And I, it's just so important. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with both of your sentiments that, yeah, like being able to revisit is such a, it's it's so fun because, you yeah, you get something new out of it, assuming it's, you know, a good movie that's full of substance. Um, like I felt the most that way about revisiting The Master, which I know isn't in this decade, but like that was one that like the first time I watched it, I enjoyed, but I didn't, I thought it was a little overhyped. But then when I went back to it, I was like, no, yeah, this is just incredible. So being able to do that or, you know, finding out that, oh, maybe I don't love that as much as I used to, you know, like growing, finding out what your tastes are, what changes about them. Yeah, like how your life experiences affect that as well. Um, like I'm sure there's a lot of movies that I will like a lot more when I'm older because you know, like they they reflect on middle age or midlife crises or there's some, um, you know, that like about being really uh, like the elderly. You know, so like there's a lot of movies that you, you can appreciate now, but yeah, being able to revisit at certain points in your life, I'm sure, will be more rewarding. Um, and yeah, I, I think this decade is just, it's kind of all over the place because I do think it's one of the strongest decades comedy wise. I think overall, as far as flat comedies go, as I said before, I think it's stronger than the 2010s. Um, but I don't think there's as many personal films in this decade. We see, you know, there's a lot of adaptations, there's a lot of big blockbusters, but there's um, some of the best, some of my favorite films are in this decade. Those top three, you know, Children Men, Lord of the Rings, No Country, are like just some of my all time favorites. So. Um, while I think there are better decades for film as a whole, you know, if I was making a list of film decades, um, I think this one is very special to me because it's, yeah, it's the decade I fell in love with film. Mm -hmm. It's definitely one of the more nostalgic ones to me too, because you know, there were, as a kid, I liked every movie, you know, like just anything I saw, if I had some attachment to it, I would just go back to it all the time. Uh, and so there's a lot of nostalgia for me there, but yeah, it's, it's definitely, I look to it also just for the comedies and, um, you know, how the straight comedy changed throughout that decade. Um, but just, again, going back and finding new things and falling in love, almost falling in love with film again by some of these movies, like Eternal Sunshine is just a big one. Um, it, it it blew me away, and I, I just love doing that. And also, you know, nostalgia can cloud your judgment sometimes, so you have to kind of have to accept that and, and go back and see... Um, 
and see how you really, really feel at that time. Uh, so yeah, so always revisit movies. That's what we're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think, you know, it's interesting too, like we keep talking about the films that we love, but then I, I should go back through the list of films and be like, okay, what do I not like anymore yes. that I did like back then? Like I, you know, I have fallen out of love with quite a few films too. And I think that would be an interesting list as well. That would be interesting to because there's yeah, there's a lot of stuff, you know, you love as a kid that like you thought was hilarious, and you go back and you're like, oh dang, I don't like yeah, this. Why? Like, like it was a bummer for me as a kid. I loved Bruce Almighty, but I watched it recently. I'm like, this is not as funny as I remember. Mm-hmm. And I'll, yeah, yeah, also seeing like what ages what el- right. what ages well, what doesn't age well and uh, for me it's Donnie Darko. I'm like, I can't. I, no. <laughs> every time I watch it, it's worse. It just uh, gets worse. I'm like too melodramatic, no. yeah. Uh, like I remember the first time I saw it and I was like, whoa. And then the second time was I was like, oh, well, that's not really as good as I thought it was. <laughs> yeah. And it just keeps getting worse. Yeah, that's always the worst. That's like, why it, sometimes there's movies I don't want to go back to because I'll, I'll just want to keep them where I think of them now. You yeah. Know? Like, <laughs> but it, you know, I do like revisiting stuff. For sure. Uh, any other final thoughts before we go? No. Yeah, I would also just like to point out, as Alyssa said, um, like it's, it's uh, ranking like a list like this is kind of arbitrary because you could flip around like all my list and it would probably like. I agree with it just the same. It's so hard to say, like, is this better than this? I don't know. I just love movies. So yeah. <laughs> don't take it as, you know, concrete stone my list. Just, uh, yeah, I think it's it, that list would change if you asked me in another year. So, mm. yeah, for sure. Well, thank you both so much. This was fantastic. Yeah, I had a blast. Thanks for having me on. Of course. That does it for this episode of Frankly, I Love Movies. Thanks so much to Matt and Alyssa for coming back on. Alyssa wanted me to mention that she has been working on the Transient Visions Festival of the Moving Image, an experimental film festival held in Johnson City, New York every fall, which presents curated programs of experimental films from all over the world. And it will be held virtually this year. And you can watch the programs online at transientvision.org from October 23rd to November 19th. Each of the curated programs will be available to watch for the duration of one week with a new program each week. So definitely want to support smaller artists and local filmmakers. Frankly, I Love Movies is part of the Orion Valley Productions podcast network where you can listen to Ravnica Avengers, our very own Real Play D&D podcast. And we have a new podcast premiering this Wednesday, September 30th. It's an Attack on Titan rewatch podcast called Tea Time with Titans with our very own Sullivan Harris, Ben Mannix, and Brian Taborny. So definitely go and check that out. If you want more social media content from us, go check us out on Facebook at Frankly I Love Movies, on Twitter at Frankly Podcast, and you can find me on Instagram at joshvaljosh 21 We'll be back next week with our first episode of our brand new miniseries. We are cooking up something really great for you guys, and I can't wait to share it with you. Until then, I'm Josh Wall, and frankly, I love movies. Mm-hmm.